Hello, and welcome to the Orthopod. My name is Liam Fernando Canavan. I'm a medical student at the University of Melbourne, and this is a podcast where I'll take a history from experts in orthopaedic and musculoskeletal medicine. Dr. John Orchard is a sports and exercise physician with over 20 years of experience. Dr. Orchard completed his medical degree at the University of Melbourne and would go on to become the first sports and exercise physician trainee in Australia. Dr. Orchard's medical career has seen him working as club doctor to the Sydney Swans in the AFL, Sydney Roosters in the NRL, and his current role as Chief Medical Officer at Cricket Australia. Off the cricket pitch, Dr. Orchard is an expert in muscle and tendon injuries and their non-surgical management, and he has significant research background with over 300 publications, along with a role as adjunct professor in the University of Sydney School of Public Health. Welcome to the Orthopod, Dr. Orchard. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Liam. We're really looking forward to it. So sports and exercise medicine, SEM, is a specialty that not a lot of medical students would be aware of. Uh, We don't have any rotations in it. Uh, We don't see SEM physicians in the hospital and the Australasian College of Sports and Exercise Physicians is the smallest specialty medical college in Australia. Can you tell me about your journey from being a medical student in Parkville to how you discovered sports and exercise medicine? Yeah, I suppose Australia has had a very long sporting culture. So we, we as a country have um, had a lot of interest in sports and sports injuries. And I did a medical student elective. I did three of them actually in final year medicine. And I did the the typical thing that you did in those days and went overseas for most of my elective period. And I did two weeks of radiology at Yale and six weeks in endocrinology at the Veterans Hospital in Washington, DC. And then I came back and did two weeks in sports medicine with Peter Larkins, who is well known probably to those who follow AFL in Melbourne. Uh, and found that I really enjoyed the sports medicine much more than I did the hospital training. Although obviously it's a great experience to go over and do anything overseas when you're a medical student. But that got me interested. And at that stage, sports medicine, which was called just purely sports medicine, we changed the name to sports and exercise medicine in the last 10 years, it didn't exist as an official uh, body or training program, but I saw it in real life as in I saw someone who had elected to specialise in that area and work primarily in that area, which was Peter Larkins, and thought, well, this this exists as a profession. Um, It just doesn't exist as a specialty yet. And I did find when I went into intern year and Um, early training years in the hospital system really didn't enjoy it and was questioning whether or not I had a future as a doctor but just at that time sports medicine or the college of sports physicians was setting up a training program and I thought this is what I need to do because I really enjoyed that two weeks more than I enjoyed my hospital training and was fortunate enough to be accepted onto the program so um, it's it's Interesting history of the college. I think we can be very proud of what we've achieved, but it has been there's been advantages and disadvantages in going it alone. We um, we got officially recognised by Medicare in 2010. Actually, we sort of partially got recognised in 2000. Um, we got given GP equivalent rebates at the time of the Sydney Olympics, and then we got officially recognised as a specialty in 2010 at the same time as addiction medicine and sexual health and both addiction medicine and sexual health were a tiny bit bigger than those two 
um, but they both became faculties within the RACP and we are elected to stay as an independent college and so we were recognised as a as a specialist college and, and now we're the smallest college. So there's a lot of debate about whether or not we should have tried to do what addiction medicine sexual health did and just been swallowed up by the RACP. And, and, and they're similar, similar uh, specialties in that they're both generally non-hospital based. You know, you can do some hospital work in sexual health or addiction medicine, but they're generally specialties that are, that are community based and they have the advantage that they have much more lobbying power. And in fact, they've received physician rebates in the last six or seven years, which we have been unable to do because they had the lobbying power of the College of Physicians. Um, so, so they've got the advantage that they've got a much bigger body um, advocating for them, but they're also, um, they're a tiny subsection of the College of Physicians and they probably feel as though within that college they're, a tiny little smaller sibling of cardiology and respiratory medicine and gastroenterology and the traditional big physician specialty. So by going it alone, we are one of the 15 recognised colleges in Australia. So we probably get a bit more prominence, but we're also um, bereft of any lobbying ability to get a fair deal under Medicare, for example. So um, there's advantages and disadvantages, but it's, it's an interesting point that the equivalent college or body in the UK went the other way and they have become, they're, they're within both the Royal College of Physicians and the Royal College of Surgeons, which is interesting. So they, they're, they're a sort of a, a hybrid of both physician and surgeon practice, but they're like a faculty or a chapter. And, and they're now looking to see whether they can branch out and become a Royal College on their own, like we have in Australia. So they're probably got some advantages of having been parented by the, those two much bigger colleges, but they're starting to feel as though they want to have a bit more prominence and um, want to see if they can become an independent Royal College in the UK. So it's really, it's really fascinating, the difference. And, and just by comparison, sports medicine is not a standalone specialty in the US, which is obviously the biggest Western country. And it is it is a very prominent specialty in the US, but it's a subspecialty. So there are about half a dozen primary specialties whereby you can do a one-year fellowship in sports medicine and become a sports medicine specialist as a subspecialty of any of orthopedics, primary care, uh, physical medicine and rehabilitation, pediatrics, emergency medicine, so, yeah, there's a lot of different models and it all comes down to the fact that sports medicine is a new specialty that most countries have set up their traditional colleges before sports medicine came into being. And, um, and it, it has evolved in every country to a degree, but how it's evolved is a little bit different in each of the various countries. Yeah, so it's a global specialty. I mean, you've mentioned the US and the UK. Um, I, uh, I, had, I was lucky to go to Italy um, over the, the uni break and spend some time in a hospital there and uh, came across a cardiologist who, who also does sports medicine. And I think the way he described it to me was it was essentially a subspecialty of cardiology doing sports, sports medicine. Yeah, there's a definitely a specialty um, of or subspecialty of sports cardiology, which is evolving now. And um, sports Italy was, I think, the country that first recognised sports medicine as a specialty. But yeah, it has ha, they've got very strong links with cardiology in Italy, and um, and sports cardiology is an emerging subspecialty that in Australia 
may very well, um, when, it, when it becomes a recognised subspecialty, which it isn't yet, it may very well be a, a sort of a, a child specialty or half from cardiology and half from sports medicine, which which would be really interesting. So it's um so yeah, re really a lot of models. Um, the other thing to talk about, especially in general, is um we we did start off as sports medicine in Australia, but we're now sports and exercise medicine, and sports medicine has probably got limited growth in that it's very much centered around competitive sport and particularly competitive sport at the high level where there are lots of jobs that are not working in private practice it's sort of outside the medicare system where you work for professional sports teams and there'll be a limit as to how many jobs are in that sector because of the limits of the number of elite sporting teams but exercise medicine we think has got the potential to to grow tenfold in the next 20 or 30 years because prescribing exercise is not only effective for so many medical conditions and effect, as effective as some of the traditional treatments that are used, but it's cost effective and it's also climate friendly. So, and, and the, the, the surprising one is, is cancer, that you definitely get better outcomes from cancer if you're exercising compared to if you're sedentary. So that, that's survival statistics which is the holy grail in cancer is all about you know what what's your five-year survival from this and, and you, you 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 have really expensive chemotherapy because it improves your five-year survival by seven percent in an rct and you say we've got to get this extremely expensive chemo funded because we can improve our five-year survival but if you for most of the cancers if you put people on an exercise program and, and, and get them exercising from being sedentary you can get survival improvements that are um, superior to a lot of the chemotherapy which is which is astounding and you also get the preventative effect so but that cuts across cardiovascular a lot of the musculoskeletal specialties cancer diabetes uh, osteoporosis so exercise as a medical treatment should be booming based on evidence-based efficacy cost effectiveness and in particular, if the, if the health sector is going to move to a net zero stance, which we say it, it's trying to, moving from treatments that are you know, borderline effective, that, that are done in hospitals with a really high carbon footprint to moving people towards getting prescribed exercise for treatment, which might be as effective, but with a almost zero carbon footprint is a change that the health system is going to have to make. But yeah, exercise medicine is in its infancy because most of us who work in sports and exercise medicine still do a lot more sports medicine because the demand's there and the health system has not caught up and decided to fund exercise medicine. So it's um, so unfortunately, if you get cancer in Australia, it's more likely than not that you won't be offered any exercise as treatment despite the evidence because it's just not what they've done. They're, they're focused on... Uh, chemotherapy, surgery, uh, etc., and things that are obviously still very valuable, but it's a it, it's a system that's in need of a bit of a shake-up to say where exercise is a, a an evidence-based treatment. We need to move to that for both evidence-based reasons and climate reasons. So you, you pointed out that students and probably well, people generally are not necessarily as aware of sports and exercise medicine physicians being the ones that are specifically trained to prescribe exercise. Any medical student will know that we should advise our patients to exercise, whether it's for cardiovascular risk or for obesity, et cetera. But you're someone who has published prolifically in this area. What can you tell me about the evidence base for exercise prescription? 
Yeah, well, it, Australia has um, nine um, health priority areas, and we did a research paper a few years ago that was first authored by Pip Inge, who works with me in cricket, that looked at exercise, and it, it is relevant for all of Australia's nine health priority areas. In other words, it either it either prevents or treats or both prevents and successfully treats in terms of the evidence base for our nine health priority areas. So it's, um, it's, it's super important, but as you know, from the medical student perspective, medical student training is hospital-based or it's university and then hospital and that there's not nearly enough exposure to community medicine. Um, and, and in particular, general practice is, is under taught in medical student training, especially given that, um, you know, you would think that 35% or whatever it is of doctors will go into general practice. It's certainly nowhere near 35% of the training. Um, and it's presumed that you, you learn a bit about everything else. And then that gives you the ability to practice in general practice. But general practice has moved on from that mentality of training in general practice is just training and everything else into being its own specialty. And you don't get nearly enough of that because it's community based and, and sports and exercise medicine is in, in the same category that it's community based, but it is you know, we are a very small college. And again, are you getting training in addiction medicine? Are you getting training in sexual health? And the answer is probably no, no, and no. For all of the um, community-based specialties, you get overs in anything that gets into the hospitals and you get unders for anything that's managed in the community. And it's it's not just sports medicine that's unders in medical training. It's plenty of other specialties. And um, exercise medicine is probably the one to watch with a boom because sports medicine's the one that people sort of know about. You watch a bit of sport on TV and you think, oh, yeah, there's a doctor running out. That must be a sports medicine doctor. That's probably what people think, that at least, it, at least it's got visibility, um, um, even though you don't get any training in it. Yeah, well, you know, I am that lucky medical student having the one-on-one -on -one with you. So hopefully people listen to this podcast because, um, you, you know, you're the person that prescribes exercise. You know, you, you, you dose it like a drug um, and it's, it's just not something we really get exposed to. So hopefully you can explain it. And the example I wanted to use was, uh, Hippocrates was once claimed to have said walking is man's best medicine and then we of course hear about people getting in their 10,000 steps but then if you look a little bit more into it it's sort of somewhere between six to seven thousand or something like that could you explain a bit you know how important is this this 10,000 step stuff yeah I, I think it's extremely important and um, you're right and you're on the money with the, um, there's a terrific number of um, meta-analyses now that have shown that you get enormous survival benefit in terms of all-cause mortality, and that means survival from cancer, cardiovascular disease, and other causes of death. Um, from every step that you take up to about 7,000 improves your mortality. So, and the, and the steepness of the graph, it's similar to in reverse to the smoking graph, as in every smoke, uh, every cigarette you have is causing your damage every step you take from zero to seven thousand a day is causing your benefit but then the fascinating thing is from seven thousand onwards it's very much a flat curve and we obsess about the top end of the curve does it curl back up again if you get to extreme levels of exercise or really heavy manual jobs and it possibly does and everyone you know everyone tends to obsess about that you know, is that a tiny little inflection up at the extreme end of where, where more exercise gets harmful and not enough attention is given to the, oh my God, it's just like a, an absolute 
ski jump going from 2006 to 7,000 steps. Um, so 7,000 is not many, but amazingly, um, a lot of the population is not there. So that's where huge public health gains can be made. The really interesting thing about exercise medicine is that it's sort of a bit, it's, it's, it's in the category now where sort of everyone knows it, like every doctor knows it and almost every patient knows it. And it sort of becomes a bit of a throwaway line. If you're a doctor who's not an exercise medicine specialist, you, you sort of say, yeah, well, give up smoking, you know, your fat, so lose some weight and um, do some more exercise, bang, bang, bang. I've given those three bits of advice in um, 90 seconds and all the patient has to do is just implement that advice. And the patient often might be sitting there going, yeah, heard it before, heard it before and heard it before. So what exercise medicine is, is how do you actually get from the patient having heard that exercise is good for you, which they probably have already heard, to, to changing their behavior. And that's the really, uh, and so you can actually have a, a one hour consult with the patient, find out about what they, what their life's like and how you could make changes. And you may still not get any traction, but if you, if you do get traction and you get them motivated to make a change and that change sticks, then you've helped, you know, every specialist in all of those nine priority areas for the rest of that person's life because you've reduced their risk of dying of cancer, of cardiovascular disease, et cetera. So, so exercise medicine tends to lend itself to long consults because it's very hard to stop. And this, you can give exercise advice to someone who is in, the, in what I call the Goldilocks zone. So someone who is doing 9,000 steps a day, they still might get back pain occasionally and you can work out how do you, how do you monitor and modify your loading to reduce your risk of getting a back pain flare up. So you can still talk to people who are pretty good with the basics at getting a little bit better. But it's hard to sort of do it in a, in a dot point fashion. So it's um, but it, but you really can categorise it as a lifestyle, especially the exercise medicine part, because it's and it's a bit like weight loss and you know smoking cessation in that you're you're getting a change that if you're successful, there are huge dividends for the patient and the health system, but it's um it's chipping away to try to get that successful change made. And, and it's, you know, horses for courses. As a medical specialist, I don't do much hands-on stuff. Uh, what people would respond, you know, how many people will respond to a physio giving someone exercises that they do on a bed in the consult room versus an exercise physiologist who gets someone and takes them down to the gym or, or out to the you know park for a few sit-ups or whatever and actually you know, so you've got exercises in the clinic exercise physiologists tend to be a little bit more field-based and they might take someone and do some exercises with them versus a specialist doctor who's not doing an exercise with them it's just talking about the importance and asking them about their specific circumstances where their activity is where they could add extra activity how they're going to motivate themselves to change their lifestyle. So it's a, it, it really doesn't matter which, you know, and, and someone could watch a video and get the right result too if they watch the, the best motivational video. So it's um, exercise medicine's all about the outcome, but you, you're continually pushing it at a different angle. And it's great that there are exercise physiologists and physios doing it from a slightly different angle to what we are. And hopefully we're all trying to drag the population over that 7,000 um, step barrier per day. Yeah, so long consults is what you just said. And one of the questions I wrote is in 2005 in the uh, Medical Journal of Australia, you wrote that, uh, and again, I'll just repeat that in 2005, out-of-pocket expenses mean that the benefits of sports physicians have not been realistically available to those in the community who rely on the public system. 
Now that's 17 years ago and it's still a problem and you're not the only one who's pointed it out. Dr. Jeff Thompson, who was a nominee for Australian of the Year in 2020 and former Chief Medical Officer of the Australian Paralympic team, he said, a general practitioner in a long consult with a patient over sports injury generates a better rebate than us who are sports injury specialists. So you've touched on it, but despite a strong evidence base, why is sports and exercise medicine perennially under-recognised by Medicare? Yeah, well, the, the reality is, um, is that it's um, a private practice specialty with massive out-of-pockets because uh, no one's championed it at um, community level. So they now produce stats for, um, you know, there's, a, there's fee comparison stats to try to hopefully, I mean, the, the intention of fee comparison was to, to look at, you know, there are some doctors ripping off the system and, um, you know, you can perhaps find a cheaper one if you find out that the fees of the, the specialists you're seeing are much higher than the average, then you should be shopping around. Um, that was the intention of it. Sports and exercise medicine on those fee comparisons um, has the lowest bulk billing rate of any specialty because we do long consults, but we're not allowed to bill for long consults. We're not part of the chronic care scheme and we are only offered short consult rebates. I think it's 90% of sports medicine consults are privately billed, which is the highest of any specialty. So only 10% bulk billed. And the average out of pocket is also amongst the highest. I'm not sure if it is exactly the highest, but I think it's 150 to 160 out of pocket for the average sports medicine consult. So, so it's not a trivial amount out of pocket, it's an enormous amount out of pocket. So the, the average initial consult with say sports exercise medicine might be a 40, 45 minute consult that is given a rebate of about $75 and it's been charged at about $230 on average. So that's a big out of pocket that the person who's in the public system or who relies on bulk billing or you know, small out of pockets that they can afford, they can't afford it. So, and then sadly, as a result, the haven't, haven't ever published this because it, I think I sent it into the MJA as a letter and it got rejected. But um, the um, locations where sports and exercise medicine physicians practice are absolutely centered around level four and five demographics. Because of that high out of pocket, you don't set up in a, in a low socioeconomic area or a rural area because people wouldn't be able to afford the fees. And I think the intention would be, oh, you could still bulk bill and you just do five-minute consults and ten minute, five to ten-minute consults and then you could bulk bill. But it just is not effective because it's not, why would you go to a specialist to say, you need to do more exercise? Oh, but I find it really difficult. So, well, that's the end of the consult and I'll see someone else. And, and so the, the, you know, the, the whole purpose is to try to give, give someone some in-depth advice, but you're not allowed to you know, use a long consult item number under Medicare. The AMA, I think, in May is voting to recognise the College of Sports Physicians for the first time. So, it, you know, the college has been in existence for 40 years and has had a training program for 30 years and was recognised by Medicare about 12 years ago. And, and the AMA has, still hasn't recognised sports and exercise medicine as a specialty. So they, in not recognising us, they haven't lobbied for us to get their physician rebates and there was in fact a five-year Medicare review process saying that the rebates are inconsistent and unfair. There are some specialties like us doing long consults that aren't allowed to build for long consults and there's some physician 
specialties where they're doing a lot of procedures and short consults. You know, I think gastroenterology, if you're a gastroenterologist who specializes in endoscopy, you know, they, they might have very brief consults because their, their practice is focused around the procedure and they can bill for long consults because they're physicians. And the, the, the Medicare review process said that all specialty consults should get time-tiered equal item numbers, but unfortunately, College of Physicians and AMA lobbied to stop that change being implemented. So we're sort of in this limbo that, you know, we're not an issue in the federal election. There's no political party saying we'll give you equal rebates because we're we're sort of less than 1% of the um, medical sector. So we will sort of keep pushing away, but it's, it's frustrating. And, you know, what's the circuit breaker? Hopefully, I mean, I'd imagine it might be the GPs who eventually do it, who say, you know, we... If the GPs, enough of them refer to sports and exercise medicine and are finding, actually, this is really important for a cancer patient to get exercise expertise, but I can't send my patients who can't afford the out-of-pockets there. If they get angry enough, they might be the ones that push it because people will listen to big colleges like GPs, but they won't listen to small colleges like us. So that's um complicated answer, but it's um it would, again, make it especially a lot bigger if it moved from only practicing in level four and five socioeconomic areas to actually being able to to um, offer services for the whole community. It is a complicated answer, but to me, it's an uncomplicated issue. There's a lot of evidence behind exercise. There's a clearly, you know, I think I had an interview with an obesity expert, and I think Australia is the second fattest country on earth. Um, cardiovascular disease is rising and is a massive issue. Exercise is clearly a solution to these issues as well as cancer. We're not trained. I don't even think GPs are sort of formally trained to prescribe it. Uh, it would make sense to include sports and exercise medicine, you know, setting where you guys can financially be stable whilst practicing and also make it accessible to the broader community. But we'll move on from Medicare because uh, I don't want to keep you too long because in contrast to Medicare, professional sporting clubs have certainly seen the value of you guys uh, and invest significantly in their medical departments. I think I was reading an interview you did um, maybe a decade or so ago where medical departments used to just be a couple of orthopedic surgeons who didn't even go to training or anything like that. And they only really saw the major injuries. So how has uh, your role of a team doctor in a professional sporting environment changed over the years that you've been working in it? Yeah, well, the the really interesting thing is the pro sporting teams have enabled the specialty to flourish without Medicare giving much support in that there is work available for sports physicians in the uh, elite sporting sector. Um, it's not, it brings up another issue too that we we are one of the specialties. We're nowhere near as bad as orthopedics or maybe cardiology, but we, we're we're only about thirty percent female um, in our specialty. Our registrars are batting a little bit higher than that, I think. But but unfortunately, because of there being more money in male elite sport, like the football codes, for example, and the traditional reluctance of of male football teams to appoint female doctors it's been something that's and 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 again medicare not supporting sports and exercise medicine it's been um, an easier specialty to make money in as a male sports physician because you've got more sporting teams that will offer you a position there's no doubt there's discrimination by male sporting teams against female team doctors and you can you can tell there's been discrimination 
in the numbers. If you look at look around the AFL and you sort of say, oh yeah, maybe there's one or two teams that have got female doctors on their staff um, out of the 18, and then you look around the NRL, it's the same. And so you know it, that that's another big issue that that we've got, and and it's hard because we don't control the employment practices of the sporting teams that they'll just interview people and make their choices to who they want as the team doctor. So it's another area that we've got to work harder towards providing equality in the specialty by making it that a, I suppose it's part of the sporting sector in terms of getting equality of pay between male and female teams. It would be one big step towards it because female teams are certainly um, happier to have female team doctors. But also, you know, you do hear stories of coaches behaving very badly towards female staff, including doctors. Um, the most famous that people could look up is Eva Canero at Chelsea, and she was sacked because she was abused by the manager at the time, um, Jose Mourinho, who, when you read how he conducted himself in that um, episode, it was horrendous. But he, he was just seen as bulletproof that he's a, he's a superstar coach and his language towards a female doctor was completely unacceptable. And But then the team sacked her on the spot as a result of saying, well, we need to keep our manager. We don't need our doctor. We can just get another one. So, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's been good that we've had pro sport enable the specialty to to thrive and and grow a little bit but we do need to be able to expand and we need you know every other specialty supported by the government whether it's paying for public hospitals or supporting it under medicare and our specialty is not so we have to say we don't want money and again there's there's this perception too i suppose that you know well why would we give money to sports medicine because that's just going to be spent on the the west coast eagles or on the melbourne storm or whatever um we we need to sort of say well the money under medicare would be going to hopefully people being able to offer services in community athletes and people who need to exercise more so um, I, I'm drifting away from the question, but it's but certainly professional sport has been terrific in terms of allowing the specialty to evolve in this country. And I, I, I have quoted before that Australia to football codes is like Switzerland to languages. That that um, if you grow up in Australia, you 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 follow. Maybe in Melbourne, people are parochial enough that you get people who only watch um, Aussie rules. But most um, most people in Australia will follow and be aware of the rules of multiple different football codes in a way that um, you don't get around the world and haven't ever seen stats on it, but we probably have more professional and elite sporting team per head of population than just about any other country because of the eclectic mix of football codes that we've got in the country. So maybe that's one reason why sports medicine has evolved so well in Australia, but then we we also have to then say, how do we, how do we parent exercise medicine to make that bigger? Because that's the one that's got more ability to affect the health of the general population. So this is one of the questions I've been dying to ask you about. Some of my favourite on TV medical things you can, for those listening, you can look it up on YouTube. So this is a quote from NRL immortal Andrew Johns describing you. John was a really popular doctor during Origin, a really sensible straight-laced guy. But when you hang around some lunatics, sometimes it rubs off. And this was in reference to State of Origin Game 1 in 2003. Uh, What can you tell me about that night in Brisbane when you were rostered on as the New South Wales team doctor? Yeah, well, look, it's... um... Well, firstly, firstly, I'll say it was before we had the current 
concussion rules, which is interesting. But yeah, we they had just brought in limited interchange in rugby league, so that you're only I think at that stage you're only allowed twelve interchanges. So early two thousands you could have unlimited interchange like you could in that era in the AFL. And it's fascinating to think of how NRL v AFL both went from unlimited interchange and the AFL finally brought limits into interchange, but limits at a huge level. So there still is a massive rotation in the AFL, whereas NRL went the other way and, and is, is much more like rugby union where we're now down to, I think it's eight um, in the NRL, but there are only, there are only 12 interchanges, but you didn't get any concession for bleeding. So if you follow enough rugby league, you know that you want your interchanges to be used in your forwards because the outside backs don't tend to get tired. Forwards are the ones running through the middle who fatigue and eventually miss tackles because they've just done too much work. And you've got centres and wingers who sit out and don't do nearly as much running who you expect them to play the full game because they're just not expending as much energy. They're not tackling as much. They're not being tackled as much. Um, and so limited interchange had just come in. And if, you, if someone got a, a split or a cut in the head they would have to come off and burn one of your interchanges and um coaches and teams would hate that if that happened to a winger or a center because you know it's sort of not too bad if it happened to a forward because you sort of have to rotate them off anyway although they'd hate it if it happened to a forward one minute into a game when when the player wasn't tired but but anyway so i used a staple gun on mick devere in the state of origin i had done it on a couple of the roosters players beforehand on the field because he was playing on the wing i think i think he played a fair bit in the centers but he's playing on the wing in origin and it was almost the worst thing that could happen to your team is to burn two interchanges to get a winger off sew him up and then bring him back on and that's two out of your 12 interchanges on someone who didn't need the rest because he's playing on the wing so Mick Devere got split and had this blood pouring out and I went on to the sidelines when a goal had been scored and stapled his head up and a few interesting things happens with respect to that firstly I'd given a demo on the staple gun before the start of game one. And I don't think he was selected. So he didn't know what the staple gun was. So he thought I was just coming up and attacking him. But I sat, so, so I had to convince him that I wasn't sort of um, a, a random from the crowd about to assault him. And then secondly, the staple gun was a one with a disposable cartilage and the cartilage got caught in his head. So I had to sort of jiggle it back on. So by the end of this, I was absolutely um, panicking. So I thought if he had a staple cartilage hanging out of his head, he really would have to come off and I'd be the laughing stock. And of course, I have to mention that in this era, you know, if you if you had blood pouring out of your head, you just automatically get a, a free interchange for a concussion assessment because you know the, the thought that someone could have enough of a hit to the head to be pouring claret down their side of the face and to not need a concussion assessment now we think well that's um that's very old school because if you've been hit on the head that hard you really should have a scat done on you or whatever so um so it is a bit of a famous a famous night and they banned uh doctors coming on the field which is sort of Oh, I think the doctors always couldn't come on the field. It's a bit of a weird rule, but they sort of reinforced that ban and said that if I did it again and sacked anyone on the field, you know. So the authorities, and I get exactly why, did not want that vision seen on TV. Apparently the TV station loved it because everyone was just, you know, couldn't get enough of the vision of a bloke having his head stapled up. So you so had this split sort of view on, you know, is it, good for the game showing the toughness and um, how much they bounce back or is it bad for the game because it's um, you've got eight-year-olds watching blood pouring off someone's head so um, it is a bit of a, fa <laughs> a famous incident and I'm a little bit more conservative now 
and probably would take him off and say, even if it wasn't a concussion at all, that you'd probably have to do that now. But it's, yeah, it's a, it's a now a flashback to a previous era. Say in like local sport or in the community or something, if someone had an issue like that, you'd probably, especially nowadays, maybe take them out of a game. Um, but in an elite athlete, your primary focus, which is really strange as a doctor, is on performing. The athlete has to perform. That's what they're there to do secondary to injury prevention so i just how do you you know how's it what's it like working with elite athletes versus say you're at you know your weekend warrior that comes in and sees you for advice on on us on sports medicine versus some of the guys you work with professionally who their job is to perform as an athlete and if they get an injury or they might have to keep push through it yeah it's um it's definitely something that's evolved over the time I've worked in professional sports. So whilst team physios are still seen as being primary beholden to the team performance. So in other words, they're treating injuries to get someone back on the field successfully as quickly as possible without the injury occurring. And, and team doctors were seen as, you know, that was their role when I first went into sports medicine. We're, we've now got this hybrid between helping with performance and getting people back safely and, and, and getting the decisions right about whether, you know, player X is fit to play, you know, and you, you, you need to get 90% plus of those decisions correct that you send them back and they get through the game, et cetera, but you don't hold them back too long and have people miss games where they could be playing. Um, but now team doctors have muscled in and concussions particularly the space in which we've done it and then we had to do it for COVID as well where you become almost like the the, the policeman of the or um, police officer of the team in terms of you know your policing safety so that concussion has been one where we've we, we now know that um, concussed players can feel as though they're right to continue and can insist that they want to continue and sometimes they can even perform, but we have to drag them against their will for the for their long-term health and safety. So um, that's an area where 20 years ago, a, a team doctor might have said, look, if the player is coherent and says that he or she wants to continue playing, that a doctor will say, yes, this is, this is one where the odds are that this player will get away with it, so I'll let them stay on. But there has been an evolution towards saying, no, we, we now know that there are potential long-term damages of um, getting repeated hits to the head, and therefore, if you concuss, you have to stay out of a game. So it's, um, and community level, there's no one policing that, so it's the, the, play, the players are self-policing, but they do follow what their heroes on TV are doing. So there's another reason why you have to take concussed players off the field is because that will act as a role model for community athletes so and, and then of course in COVID there's been you know literally dozens or even hundreds of athletes who have wanted to play with COVID but the public health will say you're not allowed to so again doctors have had to enforce that at professional sport level to say if you're if you've got symptoms you must get a test and you must isolate from the team and you're not allowed to return for whatever the public health rules say you're not allowed to return for it, irrespective of whether you, you seem to have recovered quickly. So, so we, we now have this hybrid role between helping performance, which we've always had by just getting the decisions on injury correct, and um, also being the dressing room advocate for health and safety. And there's a lot of... Um, now, that in, in, you know, on the glass half full side, that evolution's happened over the last 20 years, and 
you know, we've done a great job going from, you know, pat someone on the ass and say you can keep going if you've had a knock to the head to saying, no, we will test you and we'll have a fairly low threshold for pulling you out of the game if we think that you're not 100%. You know, that glass half full, that's been a, a, a really important culture change. But glass half empty, there are a lot of, a lot of concussion advocates in the community in Australia and in the US and in the UK who are, who are saying this change has not happened quick enough and it hasn't still isn't comprehensive enough. We need to get independent doctors who aren't aligned to the team and don't have biases for wanting to leave the best players on the field. And so there's still a feeling that there's more work that needs to be done in the area. So a lot has changed from my perspective, but I also, I don't dismiss out of hand the people who don't work in sport who say that sports doctors have been slow to, I feel like I've lobbied as, as internally as, as much as it is possible to lobby, but from people watching from a distance who have got a more public health attitude and who don't care about whether team A beats team B, when internally if you're in sport, you know, whether team A beats team B is the most important thing on any given day, you know, from a public health viewpoint, whoever wins is irrelevant and what's relevant is that you don't keep people in harm's way if someone's got a potential head injury you're on the side of taking them out of the game and and yeah coincidentally COVID's been another one where COVID doesn't discriminate between the star player and the bench player COVID just anyone can get COVID and the public health people haven't said you know well we'll, we'll you won't be allowed to play the Australian Open if you've got COVID, but if you're Ash Barty, you know, since you're the local champion, you can get COVID and we'll leave you in. They've just said, no, that rule applies to everyone and that applies to the, the Prime Minister and the opposition leader. If they get COVID, they have, to, they have to leave the campaign for seven days. So, you know, that's allegedly how we should be treating concussion is not worrying about who the player is. And we've certainly had to do it with COVID in terms of it doesn't matter who you are. If you're Ed Sheeran about to do a concert and you've got COVID, then the concert's off because, you know, it's not that you're so important you have to work that day it's if you've got COVID no one's allowed to work so yeah well we saw that with Pat Cummins in the, the Ashes series just gone he, he obviously got COVID the, after his first game as test captain then ruled out for his second well, he didn't even get he didn't even get it he got that so when we had close contact rules when when we we're trying to preserve COVID zero um so that was enough and, and uh the good thing again and it's one of the reasons why he was appointed captain and um why he's done a good job to date as captain is that he he didn't he didn't whinge you know he didn't say don't you know who i am this is ridiculous you've got to bend the rules for me because i need to play he just said shit i did talk to that bloke and he's tested positive and that's the rules in south australia and uh he was angry internally but he didn't um externally he didn't come out and whinge which is again you what you want as role models for your athletes to say, well, yeah, looking at the rules, I, I, there's no out here. I can't sort of, and I, and I and I didn't want to lie and say, oh, I wasn't at that restaurant, even though, you know, a dozen people saw him walk in. He just sort of took the hit and didn't play in that game. And, and that's sort of, again, great role model because in community sport, you want people to be able to do that. You don't want people turning up and saying, oh, it's the grand final, so I have to play. And, yeah, I have got COVID, but I might, you know, firstly, you're putting yourself at increased risk if you're playing with COVID, but then you're also risking the spread of it. So, yeah, it, that hybrid between being the independent agent of health and safety and also someone who wants the team you're working for to win is is a is a funny one and um it'll be interesting to see where that goes whether there is a move to you know in 10 years time will every football match have an independent doctor who makes the decisions and the team doctor just gets told look you're conflicted and, and not allowed to 
you know, be part of the decision-making process because you clearly would want your team to win and therefore you're not going to be objective in terms of ruling out the most important player in the team. Yeah, well, back to Pat Cummins. He's an interesting example because we've talked about concussion and how sometimes you have to stop a player from playing out of their will and similar examples would be seen for those that follow cricket with back stress fractures. People might get told about, you know, your workload's too high, you need to stop bowling or you've got a stress reaction or whatever it is, you have to take the next couple of months off. And when you're young, that's, and I had this, it was really hard to sort of follow that advice and take it seriously. It's like, oh, I've got a, I've got a, I've got something in my back and I can't feel it, but I can't play. So I have to stop. Yeah. Look, if you're going to go and work in professional sport, it's certainly telling people info that they may not want to hear is a big part of your job. And it's it, it probably requires the same level of discussion and training and experience as it is to tell someone they've got cancer if you're an oncologist, you know. So, so again, I'm glad you brought up Pat Cummins because I, I have worked in New South Wales cricket since the big three of Cummins, Stark and Hazelwood. All three of them had stress fractures and in Cummins and Hazelwood's case they had multiple stress fractures and we had to hold them out and at the time you're telling them and telling the coaching staff info that they don't want to hear but that's that's one of our biggest legacies that getting complete bony healing for all three of those players early in their career we think we're absolutely as a system reaping the rewards of managing them well early on um so it cost us in terms of um, not having them on the field for large chunks of their late teens and early 20s. But the average fast bowler historically, or the natural history of fast bowler, is that you know, by the age of 30, their, their back's packing it in because they've got multiple pars defects and non-unions and they can't get the same pace that they used to um, be able to get because there's so much degenerative change in the back and the fact that that our our men's test attack are, are, are players who don't have degenerative lumbar changes on their latest MRIs um, is one of the reasons why they're they're such a, a strong unit at the moment but yeah sometimes you do have to pull players who don't want to come out of the game and it's really tough and it's really tough when you've also got a coach equally adamant that the player can go back on and, and you can feel very lonely in a dressing room if you've got a player angry with you and a coach angry at you and you're making a decision that he thinks in the long-term interest of the um, player. But yeah, occasionally it, it works the other way that you can have a player who thinks that they're not right to go and you think, you know, the team actually needs you and I don't think that you're going to do any further damage, even though it might be an injury that might rule you out for the rest of the season. But go out there and see if you can do a role for the team. And um, as a doctor, you'll have to trust me that I, I think that it's not going to do you any long-term harm if you if you go out and continue to play. So it's um if it was just being completely acquiescent to the wishes of the player and just signing it off, um, it would not be a difficult job. But it is a really difficult job when you sometimes in the dressing room have to tell a player don't go back on when they want to is the more common one. And then you have to justify that with other staff who also, particularly the coaching staff, also might not be happy. So you do have to develop a fair degree of toughness and it's very different toughness to other doctors. And another pearl, which hopefully you'll like to hear, is that I don't pretend that the decisions we're making on the sporting field are tougher. They're actually easier in one sense that the than the decisions about you know are we going to drill a burr hole in this you know person's brain who's just come off their motorbike you know in the emergency department they're 
heavier decisions in terms of life and death. But in a hospital environment, the number of people watching that decision is limited. So you've got the patient, if they're conscious, the family members and, and other staff around you. Sports medicine, you're dealing with what would seem to be trivialities compared to doctors who work in hospitals in life and death cases. Um, but you're under tremendous scrutiny because you know, 10 years later, someone can still be talking about the decision you made on that night. Whereas someone was saving someone's life in the emergency department and no one knows about it 10 years down the track. But, but you know, if you're a doctor working in a game that's on TV, you can literally have millions of people second guessing your decision. So it's actually very difficult when you're under a fair bit of pressure in the dressing room to make a decision one way for the benefit of the team. You, you're weighing up health issues and long-term safety issues and you've also got on social media you you might be aware that there might be thousands of people commenting on whether you should have made a different decision so you're under more scrutiny so my, my again my analogy that I use for this one is it's like a you know meter and a half putt to win the US Masters and if you take all other circumstances out of it a putt that's only a meter and a half is an easy putt in golf but if it's to win a major then it's the hardest putt you've ever got in your life because you're absolutely shitting yourself about whether or not it's going to go in. And obviously what you want is someone who's not shitting themselves because they've been in that situation before and it's just another day at the office. So if you throw someone you know, off the street to putt a metre and a half to win the US Masters, they're probably going to just completely fall apart. And, and a doctor who's not used to working in professional sport, who's doing their first game, and has to decide, you know, Steve Smith's coming out of the Ashes test with concussion, they're, they're going to find the way to that decision really, really difficult. But it's part of working in professional sport that you you sort of cope with. But it just is a, a circumstance that's very, very different to the types of pressures that hospital doctors are under. And I call it being under more scrutiny rather than being under more pressure. I think that you're under pressure in the hospitals a hell of a lot and more pressure than we are under in sports medicine. But we're under more scrutiny because millions of people are watching our decisions and if people perceive that you have gotten it wrong then you can lose your job so yeah that's uh, i've never really thought of it like that because you know a lot of students talk about imposter syndrome and and the, the fear and frustration of being in in the hospital and it can be quite daunting at times and initially i was thinking about sports you know that's not something that i sort of suffer with but thinking about sports medicine it might be a way out of of that stress but it's uh it's not the case it's a different kind of stress like you said scrutiny but um, it certainly helps that you've had a long career in sport and that career didn't just start uh, when you finished your, uh, your medical training. It was actually, at least I think it is, um, when you're a medical student, you created some sort of football tipping program or something that the, uh, you'll, have to, you'll have to explain the story, but it sounds like the Age newspaper um, picked you up for your weekly footy tips. You built some sort of algorithm or something and um, your programming skills have also led you to developing the Orchard Sports Injury and Illness Classification System. So could you elaborate on those two things? Yeah, I, I certainly did um, write a computer tipping program when I was a medical student. And uh, that at one stage went to both the main Melbourne newspapers. So I was with the Age for a period and then the Herald Sun. And um, it, you know, in those days, it was just, you know, anyone who could program a computer, you know, you're seen as being some sort of freak. Whereas obviously now coding is just something that any teenage kid would know how to do you know so it sort of um probably helped me have have a strong sort of research part to my career as well so and, and being in, involved in 
publishing, um, trying to make my practice more evidence-based. And, and the, the sports injury classification system. So how's that different to the ICD coding, for example? Yeah, well, um, I developed that because there wasn't anything appropriate when I, I got a contract to do the AFL injury surveillance in 1992. And the ICD did exist. I think it was in iteration nine. And the at that stage, the coding for knee ligament was was only to the degree of you know cruciate ligament injury um, brackets anterior or posterior so they didn't differentiate between anterior and posterior cruciate ligament injuries even though they had 20,000 codes at that point they didn't have a code for hamstring injury and they still don't in the ICD-11 have a code for hamstring hamstring strain so the the common injuries in football weren't actually in the ICD and I realised that the ICD had been written for hospitals and for death and major morbidity statistics. But the injuries that we see in sport that are common um, and that are important from a sporting perspective aren't included. And therefore, we had to write our own coding systems. And a few got written around the world. And, and mine's one of the two major ones that get used around the sports medicine world. And, you know, I would have hoped by now that ICD would have made my coding system redundant by having enough detail that you wouldn't need to um, have a sports-specific one. But still, it still hasn't got to that point. And it, I suppose it's back to that question of sports medicines being seen as an irrelevance or, or too peripheral to be of concern for general medicine. So maybe that will be a, a marker that sports medicine's truly been embraced by the rest of medicine when if there's an ICD-12 that has a hamstring strain code in it, then maybe we can, we can say that sports medicine's made it into the big time. Yeah, well, data's, the economist has described data as uh, the new oil. Um, it's it's very, very useful in a research setting. Anyone who's got you know medical students, certainly in the third year of the Melbourne Uni program, we're starting to learn about um, research and it's very data-driven clearly. Um, but there's two examples um, that you've both been involved in, in, in cricket and in AFL. Um, with with use of data, one is is boundary ropes in in cricket, uh, and the other is is PCL posterior cruciate ligament injuries in the AFL. So your work led to I'll, I'll allow you to elaborate on it, but basically identifying a significant amount of injuries in people crashing into the fence with um with no boundary ropes in cricket, uh, and in in people thinking about football, the long run ups that that ruckman used to have, and then crashing into the knees. And using data, you showed that these two things were happening and then that sort of caused changes in the rules um, and reduced those two injuries from happening. Um, could you elaborate on, on those two things? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is that most rule changes get made for entertainment. So I, I'd love to take um, complete credit for introducing the boundary rope in cricket, but I, I'm realistic enough to know that we did um, report on a consistent, no, maybe to a year significant injuries where players would slide into the fence when they would never boundary rope and, and at that stage I had been asked by Cricket Australia to, to do annual injury reports for them as well and that was a, a point that um, was made in the reports to say that a boundary rope could um, prevent people smashing into the fence and about that time the boundary rope got introduced I'm you know realistic enough to appreciate that the main reason why the boundary rope came in is so that more sixes would get hit. And um, and in fact, it, it's introduced that great um, athletic uh, feeling as well. So 
players were, you know, when there was a fence, um, you didn't want to take an acrobatic catch because you had that preservation mentality that you didn't want to slide into a fence. So the, the number of terrific catches um, was nowhere near um, what it is now. So I imagine that the real reason the boundary rope came in is because people thought it'll make the game a better spectacle, which it has. It also made it safer from the point of view of not having fence collisions. But yeah, the posterior cruise ship one, obviously it's a, from a worldwide point of view, it's a smaller sport, um, Aussie rules, and it's become topical in the last few weeks because they've had a couple of posterior cruise ships. But you know, from an entertainment point of view, I think that the traditionalists would have loved the thought of two ruckmen running at each other from 20 metres away and, and charging in like um, gladiators. And that would have been something that they would have been reluctant to give up. But so many of the ruckmen in the early 2000s were getting posterior cruise ship injuries. There's a point at which, you know, maybe 2002, 2003, more, more ruckmen had in the comp had had a posterior cruise ship that hadn't. Um, so it was almost like you were going to eventually, a bit like COVID, you're eventually going to, if you're a ruckman, you're eventually going to get your PCL done when they were charging into each other. And so that centre circle rule, which to some people diminished the spectacle, it certainly saved a lot of posterior cruise ships. And there have been a couple recently in the AFL and they probably will discuss whether they need to tighten the circle or whether they need to um, pay more for kicks because they won't want to lose too many ruckmen to posterior cruciate injuries but but you know again it's it's great implementation from data you, if you say something's happening too much and and you want to make a rule change well obviously people are going to say well when you say it's happening too much how much do you mean and 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 you actually produce data and say look here are the number of posterior cruciates that we've had in the competition over the last 10 years and here's a graph of them going up it's obviously a much more powerful argument so you 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 do need the data and it's very helpful in that sense. So, so yeah, it's been, it's been good to have been involved in a couple of them. And I've, I've, but I've, I've, if you, if, if you're happy to give me the credit on the boundary rope, I'll take it and uh, I can take the credit for all of those um, terrific catches we see of, uh, of the Glenn Maxwell's and the like sort of um, jumping over the rope, um, tapping the ball back in and catching it on the rebound. So, um, um, but yeah, that, there, there was a small element of um, injury prevention that came into that decision to bring in the boundary rope as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Orchard. Yeah, all right, Liam. Um, good to speak to you and uh, really enjoyed having the chat. Thank you for listening to The Orthopod. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by the handle at SomaGradGroup or on our website, somagradgroup.com. See you in the next episode.